Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have to get started. This is one of the several sessions that include continuing education credits. So, anybody in the room who needs the opening code? Okay, opening code for one second. I'm told to start on time and make sure you give the code early on. So, the starting code is 4F930. 4F930. Okay? Unfortunately, right now we have only a third of the registered attendees here. But having eaten in both restaurants in these two hotels, I'm not at all surprised that, uh, and so I'm sure people are going to trickle in and I'm going to have to play it by ear as to whether or not I give out that, that starting code a second time. Well, there's always that. It was hard to find. There's always that. All right, so you are at uh, 411 from the IAC. 411, of course, being information, IAC Information Access Committee. My name is Brian Charlson. I'm I am temporarily the chair of this committee because Kim has done me the honor of appointing somebody to take my place, which I think is lovely. Yes, I am. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What are husbands for? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So at this point, what I want to do is start out the afternoon by asking my wife to be quiet. And then, yeah, I'm that guy. <laughs> Too many friends in the audience. So what I want to do is to give you an idea of what the IAC is and how it conducts its business. The IAC in 2018-19 had seven conference calls during which we discussed a wide variety of issues. We were frequently updated by folks from our national office. I got to get my phone not to talk to me. Uh, anyway, we were frequently updated by Eric Bridges, uh, Clark, um, and when Tony was with us about all of the activities that the national office was involved with relative to information access. So meetings at Google, at Amazon, at Microsoft, at Apple, at, uh, well, the list goes on and on, as well as meetings that took place at our national office, um, and occasionally meetings that weren't hosted by either side, but rather where we co-attended uh, meetings. And in that process, one of the phrases we hear a lot is NDA. What is NDA? Non-disclosure agreements. So, as, uh, as Josh up here said to me when I asked him what he does at Amazon, I tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. So, it's in that kind of spirit that sometimes the IAC is informed of things, and other times the IAC can't 
be informed about things. There's some things we're informed about that we are under legal obligation not to share. And that's one of the reasons we invite those who share such things with us to come and share them with you. So that's part of why we do Info 411. Okay? What have we been involved with this year? As Ray mentioned during the meeting of the committee chairs, we're putting together a long and medium-term plan for going forward. In the world of technology, it used to be that we were off to the side and we all were, you know, the guys uh, behind the curtain getting things done. These days, technology does everything from, uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who was getting a new home, and she's decided not to pay $10,000 for a smart toilet. Uh, I concur with her on that. But nonetheless, it is in everything, in everything. So we're trying to define what our role is in trying to keep track of all of this. And naturally, another part of it is not just how ubiquitous it has become, but also how rapidly it changes. The rapidity of change. So no sooner have you succeeded to getting something accessible than that something's not available for sale anymore. Or the latest update broke the accessibility. Uh, and the list goes on and on. And this doesn't just apply to the web. And Ray Campbell, our secretary of ACB, and uh, an employee of United Airlines in terms of web accessibility, will be speaking about that later in this afternoon's program. But it extends into home appliances. I have a uh, smart, I guess it's smart, smart microwave oven that doesn't require that I be smart to simply tell it to warm up my cup of coffee, tell it to pop my popcorn, tell it to defrost my frozen lunch entree. So that's pretty exciting. Friend of ours, uh, Judy Dixon, she'll be presenting twice, two or three times this week, just bought new washer and dryer from GE. And not only do they have an uh, app that will allow her to monitor the conditions of her washer and her dryer, and it reminds her, hey, the clothes have been in the dryer, and the dryer's been off for 30 minutes now, don't blame me for the wrinkles. Okay. Um, but it also gives her the ability to give some commands to it uh, and check other statuses, such as the automatic soap dispenser. So it is showing up in everyday appliances. We're also monitoring the ongoing nature of um, education. We're very concerned about online learning and its general accessibility. Those in this room who may be students may say, well, it's not as bad as it used to be. And that's probably true. Is it fully accessible? No, not a one of the platforms is currently fully accessible. Now put yourself in the shoes of the professor teaching the class. If that person happens to be blind or visually impaired, 
the accessibility goes down dramatically. And the only way most visually impaired uh, people can use that from the professor side of things is with the use of student aides acting as their screen readers, doing tasks that are within those applications that are not accessible to them. And many, many decisions on what components are going to be used in these kinds of applications. You decide not to use that part. While it might be the best choice for a given task, you're going to have to use an alternative to accomplish a similar but not the same thing. So sometimes accessibility is only kind of achieved by not doing things in a package that uh, is robust and spotty in terms of its accessibility. So we monitor those kinds of things. As you can imagine, um, that's a huge task. We can't take on everything and do much of value for any one thing. So we pick our battles. Uh, we pick our battles first by working with those who will work with us. And you see them as sponsors at this convention. You see them speaking at sessions throughout the week. So friends like Amazon, like Microsoft, like Google, uh, not only are they the big boys, so to speak, but they're also the ones who take the time to come and talk to us and at least as important, listen to us through the process. Uh, I wouldn't invite them back if I didn't feel comfortable that they were telling it as best they can within their NDAs. But nonetheless, you can always push the button and see what comes out. I own uh, Fire TV uh, in my living room, which Peter mentioned during an unofficial statement before uh, Prime, what is it, Prime? Prime Day? Prime Day. And suddenly I came away with a nice fire TV uh, and we enjoy it very much. So yeah, sometimes you've got to push the buttons and you, these people will occasionally leak information, wink, wink, in the process. So rather than spending time talking about what we have been doing, because it's subtle, it's in the background, and it's continuous. I want to ask if anybody in the audience has anything they'd like to say as to where they would like this committee in 2019, 2020, to put its focus. Peter, would you in the front. Would you sure. I'll run, I'll run microphones. Here's a, here's a I am running the mic around because that's something else I can do. Susan. Hi. Um, I may have missed this because I was about five minutes late coming in, but the whole area of um, touchscreen kiosks, be it McDonald's or uh, your Department of Social Security or any of organisations that have started to introduce touch screens um, to avoid people having to talk to a real person. Yes, we, we're monitoring that and it's interesting. Some of the places that were 
involved with was the uh, pizza restaurant that was in New York City, I think it's still there, where in order to reduce the amount of staffing and to make it really fast to get through and get your pizza and et cetera, was fully inaccessible and was run exclusively by touchscreens. And uh, go ahead. Uh, this is just Peter Korn since I yeah. have the mic. Go for it. Um, I thought I'd mention that uh, Amazon lockers are a place that you can get products delivered to and they have touchscreen kiosks, but they also have headphone jacks and they're fully accessible uh, through speech through speech output and the 10 key keypad uh, input. So that, that is one touchscreen kiosk uh, outside of ATM machines that also talks. Sorry, Brian. Nope, nope, you did great. That, again, I, I was telling Peter earlier, I do not like talking heads, so dialogue is the way for me. So that was Susan's suggestion that we should put some emphasis on those kiosks once again. Now we've dealt with uh, an accessible, so to speak, kiosk at the airport the other day. And uh, while it may have been accessible, it was painfully long to do what a sighted person did at that same kiosk. 10 seconds versus 10 minutes to accomplish the same thing. So it's not just a matter of accessibility, it's a matter of usability. And that's really where a lot of our focus on the committee has been directed, that usability question. Anybody else want to make a statement? Microphone is coming. Are you working with things like um, flat screen ovens and stoves and other appliances like washer and dryers? appliances? Certainly. Um, again, last year we had the young man here from GE who invented this attachment you could add to a GE washer and dryer and be able to run it. And now while that attachment is more generally available throughout the product line, those same machines have Bluetooth interfaces so that you can control or read the conditions of all the things that are on the screen. Is that universal yet? Not even close. And one of the problems with things such as washers, dryers, uh, refrigerators, stoves, is these white goods, I don't know how often you buy one, but I don't buy them very often. And so for them to innovate in that space, uh, frequently the latest version is kind of two versions of Go, uh, with respect to what we expect from our cell phones and, and laptops, which we expect to change every two to three years. And that's a big part of the problem. The other part of the problem is the vast majority of Americans do not own a washer and dryer. What? They use a washer and dryer. Apartment dwellers, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. Those of you who are homeowners don't know that life. Those of you who don't live in a college dorm don't know that life. But these people use somebody else's washer and dryer and they're not in control of whether that's going to be accessible or not. One of the other things that I want to encourage people to do just in general is we do one hell of a job telling one another what our problems are. We don't do a very good job of telling the company 
that we're dealing with what our problems are. While we like to work with a collective voice, a collective voice frequently becomes one voice. So we need people to literally, if you need access to that website, take time to tell them that you can't use their website because it's inaccessible. When you go to pick out that new washer or dryer, tell them that you're only interested in looking at ones that are accessible. And that if they don't have one, you're going to take your business elsewhere. Because to some degree, you have a market share that you need to flex a bit in the process. So are we working on that? Yes, we are. The major uh, producers like General Electric do speak with us from time to time as they're doing developing. I think we're going to get to the point where we're going to need to, on an ongoing basis, send somebody to the computer electronics uh, show that happens in Las Vegas each year. Yes. Yep. Just, just specifically to see where things are going so that we can not only complain when something isn't working, but commend when something is working. And also, I think, to share with one another what that is. If you hadn't asked the question, where would you have known that GE has a line of accessible kitchen appliances and laundry appliances? Where would you have heard about that? Maybe the Braille Forum, right? But we have to communicate better with one another. As I bring the microphone to the next person, I want to expand on something that, that Brian said. Uh, he mentioned the, the microwave that he talks to, and more and more appliances are uh, supporting Alexa and interoperability with Alexa. And blind customers, early blind customers of the microwave, uh, used the, the page on Amazon.com to present feedback and reviews of the microwave. And the positive reviews that blind customers gave of the microwave were noticed by senior leadership at Amazon. So, so just to, to underscore Brian's comment about using your individual voices to give feedback to companies when they do things well, as well as when they do things poorly, it works at least at Amazon because we are seeing it. There's a woman over here who's waiting for the microphone, Harriet. Um, about a year ago or so, we had to buy a new stove. And boy, I'm going to tell you something really interesting. The one I had before was a Whirlpool. It had a touchscreen okay, but it was tactile enough. I could tell the arrows and the different things for setting it up, but boy, you can't find one like that anymore. Mine's well decorated with dots and little shapes and things, but um, also the burners where I have a, it's a glass cooktop, and um, you, I had to look and look and look to find ones where you could feel a difference between where the burners are and where they're not. You know, the it has a little different texture. And the other comment I would like to make is um, the things that have um, a Bluetooth and you can talk to them are fine. I have Alexa and I really like her. <laughs> but what if your internet goes down and you have a touch screen washer and you 
need to do your laundry. You know, those are the things, I guess if you have your cellular service, that's okay, but let's say you don't, you just have an iPad, then you're stuck. Um, I, uh, I'm fine with technology, I like it a lot, use it a lot. But anyway, the stove thing, I did call Whirlpool and I told them about that, that they had a wonderful thing and they took it away. And I didn't get much of a comment. They were not that interested. Well, you know, one of the things about these is it's, it's kind of the collective opinion. You realize that there are a whole bunch of things that are illegal. And you would think that the U.S. Department of Justice would step in when you file a complaint that something was being done and it was illegal. But they don't. They wait until there's enough complaints for there to be seen to be a pattern of abuse. So you might not get that positive feedback when you give your original feedback to them, as some kind of indication of, yes, we'll get back to you and we'll tell you what we're doing about it. But that doesn't mean that it's gone into the circular file. Don't become overly discouraged by that. Uh, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I don't have enough hours in the day, so I'll try to remind myself, now listen, that didn't work for me, I better write a letter. And then I remember that the next time it didn't work well, that I still hadn't written that letter or sent out that email or whatever it might be. But it is worth doing. It truly is worth doing. We're a low-incident population. Uh, but, you know, the readers of our comments know that too. And so if they see five complaints from us, it's like seeing 5,000 complaints from some other sub group of their market. So it's always, always worth doing. I have that same Whirlpool uh, range, I think, glass top range, and it has a slight etch mark where the burners are. And so when Kim goes and tries to cook something on the stove, she feels for that before she turns the burner on so she can line up the pan. I do it the other way around. I turn the burner on, I feel for where the heat is, and I cover it with a pan. It's a different approach that achieves much the same, same effect. But I do use the touch screen, and it is frosted wherever there is not something to touch. And the unfrosted space has shapes to it that represent the buttons for bake, broil, on, off, temperature up and temperature down. I cannot use the time bake function. I cannot use the self-cleaning function because both of those are in kind of semi-menus. So yeah, it's, it's an ongoing issue. And we've discussed over the decades about whether or not what we need is some form of universal control, like your universal remote control that controls all of your entertainment system kind of thing, that we would use in uh, a kitchen so you wouldn't have to install a screen reader on each device for it to be a talking device. It would simply emit infrared or something that would allow us to do those kinds of things. Or build it in. 
And so we opted for the build it in method under the term universal design. So we would rather have the ability to walk up and use any device because accessibility is built into it rather than to have that special device that makes it accessible. And as more and more people turn to smart appliances, that's happening. Uh, so I, I hope that that will work for us long term. Any last questions? Um, yeah, Susan Thompson again. I just wanted to make a suggestion. Um, you've talked a lot about the, the, the value of individual feedback, and I totally agree. But I think for a lot of people, the idea of writing and trying to set out what the issues are and why they, you know, why they need to be fixed is, is a little daunting. So I'm wondering if the committee could consider, um, if it hasn't already, um, putting some, making some template letters available that could be, you know, um, tailored for the individual circumstances, but that would set out a lot of things like, you know, you realise this is actually required by the law, or um, this is this is what I can't do, and as a blind person, it means that you know I can't do my dry my clothes or just a, a template letter that could be, be, ta be tailored and used uh, just makes the task a little less daunting. Good idea. I'll bring that to the next chair of the committee. I, I do think... Well, let me back up and tell you that my degree is in political science, strangely enough. And I took a lot of coursework on being a staff member. I was a staff member for the Oregon State Senate for a number of years. And a form letter is one step above a petition signature in terms of its effectiveness. In fact, to a large extent, the less professional a letter looks, the more impact it's going to have. Not the less, I don't mean it can be rude, and I don't mean that it can be inaccurate, but if it looks homespun, it gets 10 clicks instead of one click from the mailbox. So doing form letters uh, that require very little on the part of the writer is, um, it's, it has its value, but it has to be used carefully to, to be effective. Exactly. If it, if it turns a non-write to a write, it's worth it. But I don't want it to become the default way to do it, uh, because then it's just like signing a petition. Sharon, I believe you have a question? Uh, microphone. Let me bring the you. microphone over, I thought. We're doing everything on mic. I'll get to you next. Hi. I'm just thinking that, you know, you say a petition is not worth much, and in some ways I agree, but when you see the volumes of, you know, how many people are in a petition, uh, I don't know. I think it has some merit these days. There's a number of different applications on the web for doing petitions. Um, we are, as you know, considered a low-incident population. We know that if you take all the members of ACB, all the members of NFB, all the members of Blinded Veterans of America, 
and you put them all together, they represent less than 3% of the blindness community at, a, at large. And if all of them were to sign a petition, it would probably have less signatures on it in terms of any kind of federal action, less signatures on it than the one that would vote Mickey Mouse in for president. It's sad, but it's true. They talk about tens of thousands of signatures before it tips the scale to be noticed because it has to be noticed by the media to a large extent before it's noticed by policymakers. Again, this is a Brian Charlson point of view. It's based on lots of years of experience, but I'll, I'm gonna tell you one very quick story, then we're gonna move on to Peter Korn's presentation. Oh, gee. Back when we were newly members of the Bay State Council of the Blind in Massachusetts, our um, <coughs> governor, then Michael Dukakis, decided that he wanted the legislature to raise taxes to pay for social programs. And he wasn't getting their attention, so he decided that he would submit a budget that slashed virtually every social program uh, in the state including our Library for the Blind, which he funded for $1. Well, we didn't like kind of being put out there as the uh, scalp wound, um, so we wanted ours to be funded much better than that. So what we did, we did, did a campaign. We printed up those three by five cards that you flip over on the containers, only we put the return address as the state house speaker and each and every day while the budget was being discussed thousands of little green boxes arrived at the speaker's office and had to be they had to bring in a mail truck every day to redirect them to the library and we got his attention and we didn't do that by one person doing something but by hundreds of people doing it and sticking to it and putting those through. I, th I think we ended up with something like 40,000 pieces of mail went through his office. And he, he, he called surrender early on, but it was hard to retract the cards. Uh, and it was very effective. We not only got the budget back, we doubled it that year. So I believe in grassroots efforts. Now, I'd like to introduce to you uh, Peter Korn, who's not only a great mic runner, but a longtime tech friend of the blindness community. Uh, got his start many, many years ago. Um, he was involved in a little company called Berkeley Systems, for those who go back in the Mac world that long. And he's now been with Amazon for a number of years, and he's spoken to us at several conventions. But I've asked him to come and talk to us about uh, the latest and greatest from Amazon. And again, remember that rapidity, rapidity of change. Some of the latest and greatest was, uh, well, last year's latest and greatest, well, not be, it might not be passe. There may have been a leapfrog over that to a whole new way of getting things done and getting them done effectively. Peter, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I brought with me my colleague Josh, who I will uh, also share the mic with uh, for a little bit. So um, I see about a third of the faces uh, were also in our session earlier this morning. 
Uh, I apologize to you since I'm going to be repeating some of the news that you may have heard uh, earlier this morning. Um, so Amazon, we're known for our online store. We're known for Kindle eBooks, Audible, uh, Read uh, Aloud books. We're known for Alexa, for Fire TV, Fire tablets. And I'm just going to share with you some of the news in all of those areas. So um, just quickly, round of applause. How many have shopped on Amazon.com in the last few weeks? So um, starting last year, we instituted a new policy for all companies that want to list their products in our store. Those companies are now required to put alt text on the images of their product pages. We will reject a, a detail page, as we call it, a product page, if the images on it don't have alt text. This is also the case for our own products that we put up on the store. This doesn't fix the many, 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 many pages that were there before we instituted this policy. You will still find unlabeled images throughout, but going forward starting uh, over a year ago now. Um, moving on to Kindle, we now have over 9 million Kindle ebooks that work with screen readers on PC and uh, iOS and Android and of course Fire tablets as well that uh, Alexa will read to you if you ask her to read this Kindle book. And on the PC you can have math equations read to you with NVDA, you can navigate tables with NVDA and very soon now also with JAWS. Um, Audible, we continue to release more and more books in Audible format. The Audible format is getting richer. We're using now multiple narrators. Sometimes we're adding a little bit of music in the background. If you have the Kindle book, you can often add Audible to that at a discount. It's sometimes even uh, less expensive to go the Kindle to Audible route than to start with the Audible book alone. With both Kindle books and Audible books, if you have Alexa, you can ask her to read the book to you, and she will. Speaking of Alexa, we continue to have more and more devices in which you can enjoy Alexa. We've introduced uh, updated versions of the Echo and Echo Dot. The Echo Dot now has 75% more speaker volume, room filling volume in the $39.99 dot that fits just about anywhere. Uh, we have something called the Fire TV Cube, which is a mashup of an Echo Dot with Fire TV. It means you can sit on your couch no remote in sight, and just call out to Alexa to tune your TV to a particular channel, or ask for a show, or do a search, all from the comfort of your couch with your voice. You can also ask for the weather and your Kindle books and all the rest, and they will be played through the much louder, nicer speakers of your TV or home theater system.
Um, speaking of Fire TV, we have introduced a 4K version of our Fire TV stick. So if anyone out there cares about having 4,000, actually 8,000 pixels uh, on your TV screen, or if you have friends or family members who like that ultra high definition, we have a $49.99 stick that will do that for you. Uh, we've also been putting Fire TV into our televisions. So Toshiba and Insignia are two companies we are working with uh, alongside Best Buy to put Fire TV and Alexa into these physical televisions. There's a 24-inch um, uh, television with Alexa and Fire TV and the VoiceView screen reader for $150. Although I just noticed this morning online we have a sale going on. It's $129.99 at the moment. This is an Insignia television and it is the Fire TV Edition smart TV. We have 20 different models uh, across Insignia and Toshiba from 24 inches all the way up to 55 inches. The 55 inch model is $450. Every one of these TVs has four HDMI inputs. You can name these inputs and then refer to them with Alexa by name. So if you name HDMI 1 uh, Apple TV and HDMI 2 is my Blu-ray player, then you can simply say, Alexa, switch input to Apple TV. And she will do so. Or switch input to HDMI 3, and she will do so. They also have Bluetooth support for Bluetooth headphones, and of course, a headphone jack, and a um, cable uh, jack to connect your antenna, your cable antenna to and that coaxial cable antenna will pull in over-the-air broadcast TV, you know, that old radio stuff, mm -hmm. radio waves. And we get the program guide for broadcast TV over the Internet, and we'll display that on your screen, and that works very, very nicely with VoiceView. It also works with Alexa, so you can say to Alexa, I'd like to watch Wheel of Fortune. And if it's on, she'll tune to it. Also in the Fire TV realm, we've introduced something called a DVR, a digital video recorder. This is basically a little box with a hard drive in it, and it will record broadcast TV. That's called the Fire TV Recast. And with that, you can record Wheel of Fortune or NCIS or the evening news. If the program that you are recording or wanting to watch is one of the handful with audio description, you can ask for the audio description and we will give you the described version. If you record a show that has audio description, you can get the audio description back when you watch it. Only because this is broadcast and this is the second audio program, for some reason the audio description is called Spanish. Nonetheless, uh, that's available. So before I turn the microphone over to Josh to talk about uh, what's new in our tablets and voice you, 
I thought I'd take a pause because I've given a ton of information and I'll walk around with my mic to the woman who's ferociously raising her hand for any questions. Go ahead. Um, and I'm asking you this, but I'm not uh, trying to put you on the spot. Handle. Recently, my husband um, and I noticed that um, some uh, so shows that were audio described by Netflix are now available on Amazon. Um, but the audio description has disappeared. Are, are there plans to look at shows that were previously described and make the description available? We actually wrote a review to Amazon and told them how great it was, but it would be even better if they maintained the description and our review didn't fit their criteria so they wouldn't post it. So yes, we are working hard to get descriptions, description tracks from as many uh, shows as we can. As it turns out, when you get a show, you have to explicitly ask for the description. They don't just give it to you. Even when you write into the contract, give us descriptions whenever you have it for any show that has ever been described, they often forget to give us the description and then we have to go and chase them. So we've been doing that. Uh, earlier this week or this past week, we added another 65 titles with description and the bulk of those came from places like Paramount and Warner Brothers and so on where they had made the descriptions but they hadn't given it to us when they first gave us the films and after we went and chased them they did so. So we are working hard to chase after every described title that we can find and make it available to our Prime Video customers. Oh, you can absolutely let us let us know. We actually look. We well, so you can send email to um, device-accessibility at amazon.com, but. They do, and I don't remember what what it is. <laughs> um, the uh, one of the things we are doing is we look at the audio description project pages, and we look at their master list. And if there's anything on that master list that we have but we don't have the descriptions for, we're asking the studios for it. So we are we are doing that on a regular basis. We're building it into all of our contracts. Um, you're absolutely welcome to please send us email, but I just wanted to let you know what we are already doing uh, to that end. Darian. So could, um, this is not my question, but I couldn't write down that email address quick enough, so it's device something at something? Device-accessibility. At Amazon? At Amazon.com. Okay, um, my question is, um, What's the process for getting a book that is already on Kindle uh, made available on Audible? And I just am putting a plug in for my book that I wrote that I want to get on Audible. It's called Speak Up for Yourself, Get What You Need and Feel Good About It. And it came out in February. Um, I don't recall an Audible feedback alias. You can certainly... Again, use device-accessibility, and we will route it to the right place. Um, D-E-V-I-C-E, 
dash accessibility at amazon.com. And uh, we, we route those emails when they're not specific to devices to the, the right place when we get them. Uh, other questions before we pivot to voice view and tablets? Peter? Yeah. Um, my friend Carl keeps talking about cord cutters. Cord cutters. So if you were to describe a cord cutter's dream in terms of accessible product, how would you describe that? Uh, sure. So I would, I would think the, the cord cutter's ideal product would be very inexpensive, would work with broadcast television, would allow me to stream from every streaming service there was, not just Prime Video, but Netflix and Hulu and Showtime and HBO and DirecTV and NBC Online and CBS Online, that every one of those was filled with audio described content and was brilliantly accessible. And we're actually fairly far along to that ideal vision. With one of these, starting at list price, $150 Fire TV televisions, uh, you get broadcast TV with whatever audio descriptions are there, you can stream Netflix with its audio descriptions and its talking interface that works with VoiceView. You can stream Prime Video with its audio descriptions and talking interface. You can stream Hulu with the handful of audio described titles that they have, again, working with VoiceView. Hulu? Oh, I'm sorry. You are correct. Hulu's audio descriptions are not yet available on Fire TV. Um, ACB is, I'm sure, talking with them about that very topic. Um, yes, you did. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I presume in that settlement you were hoping audio description would be on such places as Fire TV. That's right. Um, so when, when that all settles out, um, you will have it on, on that television. Why don't I bring the microphone to you so you can speak to this? They better hurry up. Here you go. She's done now. So um, just the Hulu has the rest of um, 2019 to um, finish the technical transition for... Um, allowing the audio description. Right now, the few um, programs and series that they have available are only accessible via their website with audio description. But they are working on their app, and hopefully they're working on the, um, the API that needs to be available so that the Fire TV can work and other devices can work as well. So we're continuing to monitor that through our attorneys and, and our technical team. And we have not yet spoken with them, but uh, we have documentation on our uh, website that describes 
how to make an application running on Fire TV work especially well with VoiceView. And, and I hope that, that that has been brought to their attention or will be brought to their attention. We are very happy to, to help with any technical support that's, that's involved. One of the things that we did um, when we made Fire TV and we brought the VoiceView screen reader to Fire TV, uh, Fire OS is the operating system of our Fire tablets, Fire TV devices. Fire TV, Fire OS is a derivative of Android, and so it's based on the Android accessibility framework. We've been extending that API, that framework, to support some of the more uh, rich and complex user interface patterns of these television interfaces. And that extension is part of what makes VoiceView uh, such a nice, VoiceView on Fire TV such a nice blind experience. Um, and we uh, have published documentation on how to take full advantage of that. Uh, but so to finish um, answering your question, um, Brian, the, the only other thing I would add to that ideal cord cutters experience would be a way to record broadcast shows. And that's, of course, a softball law back to Amazon with the Fire TV recast, our digital video recorder uh, that will record uh, up to um, 100 hours, I believe. Uh, no, 1,000 hours? Anyway, lots and lots and lots of hours. Uh, of broadcast TV. It actually has multiple TV tuners, so you can record two or four programs simultaneously pulling them off the air. So if two things that you want to watch are on at the same time, you get that. And one of the interesting things about Fire TV Recast is it's got an antenna on one end and Wi-Fi or Ethernet on the other end. So if the best place to get reception in your house, maybe you're using an indoor antenna, and that's no, is, is right by, is in the attic, or right by a window, and where you want to watch TV is nowhere near that, maybe on another floor, uh, that's fine. We will stream over your Wi-Fi in your house the programs that you're recording or your live TV from that Fire TV recast to your Fire TV box, to your tablet, etc. So, an awful lot of the cord cutter's dream is available today and accessible today. I have a question. I'll bring the microphone to you. And Brian, I'll just keep going until you tell me to shut up and it's the next person's turn. Okay. But we also have to get Josh but in here in a get moment. Josh in there, bye. There you go. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think Amazon is the most incredible company out there. Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, and so my question is, because I'm a person who likes to collect loads and loads and loads of books and loads and loads and loads of music, uh, what happens when that <coughs> recording device is full? Can you move those somewhere else? Or um, how can you add to your collection? So if it is the DVR and it is recordings over broadcast, 
Uh, we either have a 500 gigabyte or a one terabyte hard drive that comes with that. And eventually that will fill and you'll have to watch stuff and delete stuff or buy a, another Fire TV recast. Um, but if it's movies uh, that are streamed over the internet, those are generally always available. If you buy the movie, uh, it will be stored in our cloud. If it is an Amazon Kindle book, an Audible audio book, all of those things are in the cloud with your name on them. If you run out of space on your device and you delete it, you can download it from the cloud uh, anytime you want. I think you can. I haven't tried it. Yeah. So let me now uh, pivot to uh, Josh, and we'll take more questions at the end, but I want to make sure we have time for uh, the great news about voice view and tablets and so on. Josh. Hey. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> Josh Mealy here. Uh, I am a recent, uh, recently joined uh, Amazon in late February or uh, late January. You might um, recognize my voice from uh, my work at Smith Kettlewell. Um, but basically, uh, the the group at Amazon that um, that Peter and I are both with is the devices group, and of course. Um, you know, we've spent some time really talking about the new features that are available on the TVs, which is really super exciting. Um, TVs and and all of um, you know all of the various TV varietals. Um, but of course, Amazon is also really well known for its tablet devices and its e-readers. And um, we have a screen reader that we that runs on all of our various uh, screeny devices called Voice View. And it's um, it's essentially so voice so uh, Fire OS, which is what drives our um, our devices, which is you know sort of the operating system. Um, Fire OS is uh, it's a as Peter said earlier a uh, an Android variant, and so uh, many of the many of the um, you know things that. Uh, if you've ever used Android, using the tablets, uh, the Fire tablets is very familiar. There's um, there's a very Android feel to the whole to the whole thing. Um, but Voice View is not talkback. Voice View is its own uh, its own screen reader that we uh, that we created. It is using the accessibility uh, framework that um, that is available in Android, but basically it's, it's a very different experience. And we're really, we really care very much about how uh, blind people access uh, information. And so um, it's critical that we have a, a screen reader that gives us access to all of the content that Amazon um, provides. So yes, we want you to be able to use the uh, the tablets for anything you want, but it's it's really important to us to make sure that you can access your Kindle books on uh, on uh, a Fire tablet, to make sure that you can access Prime Video on a on a tablet, to make sure that um, that your um, your Audible books are available, and so. These are the the kinds of things that we really um, we really care about uh, in order to make sure that you, as a blind uh, blind customer, have uh, have access to all of the things that we're um, uh, we're offering, and um, so that includes, of course, 
uh, an emphasis on Braille. We're really, um, we believe that Braille is really important and we've, uh, we've worked very hard to ensure that uh, our VoiceView screen reader supports a number of different Braille devices and we're, um, we're constantly trying to improve that by adding Braille devices, adding features. So in that vein, um, I'll tell you about a couple of the features that we've added recently that I think are kind of, um, that I think are interesting. And, and, and of course, you know, uh, a screen reader is a screen reader. If you've been using uh, a screen reader on any other tablet, uh, there are many features that carry over from, um, from screen reader to screen reader, whether it's uh, TalkBack or uh, VoiceOver or VoiceView. Um, so I'll tell you about a couple of the things that we've done lately that I think are interesting and unique um, or that enhance the experience in particular. So one, of course, is that um, we've uh, recently added a new way of toggling VoiceView on and off. If you triple tap the power button, um, and that feature is enabled, then voice view will toggle on and off. It doesn't work, um, uh, it doesn't work that way straight out of the box. There's a way to turn voice view on straight out of the box. And um, once you turn it on and you enable the, uh, the power button uh, toggle, then you can, you can um, easily turn voice view on and off that way. There's another, um, another function we've added recently, and we think of this as more of a, um, of a, function to support our work, you know, our integration with Kindle, um, we, uh, in addition to being able to read by characters and words and lines, you can also read by sentence and paragraph, which, uh, which is a really nice, uh, a really nice feature. I don't know, you know, a lot of the time when I'm, you know, reading through a, a document in Microsoft Word, I'll read by paragraph. So now you can do that on, um, you can do that in uh, books or in any other spot uh, on, uh, on a Fire tablet with, um, with voice view. Of course, um, it's not just tablets. It's not just the Fire tablets. We've got the, the e-readers where voice view works as well. Um, so if you are only interested in you know, Kindle books, you can, uh, you can run voice view on a, on a, a uh, Kindle tablet or a Kindle e-reader um, and be able, to, be able to read those books as well as uh, some of the headless, uh, sorry, the, um, headless. <laughs> sorry, headless, uh, headless. We call the, we've got two different types of Alexa devices. We've got the uh, Alexa devices that you just talk to, like the dot and the, um, the original uh, echo. Um, and then uh, there are a bunch of, um, a bunch of uh, newer devices with screens that you can talk to. They're called multimodal devices. And, um, and if you've got an Alexa device with a screen, like for example the Echo Show, um, you can also run voice view on that. And so you can not only talk to the device using Alexa, but you can interact with the screen by swiping um, in the same exact way that you would do with um, with uh, voice view on, on a tablet. So, um, so these are all really, um, really just uh, various, uh, various things that we're doing in order, to, um, in order to support blind users of all of our content through our hardware. Um, I could take a couple of questions on, um, on tablets and the voice view screen reader, but I'd 
I'd also like us to cover um, a little bit more about, I, I guess, Peter, you mentioned um, our sort of, our hard push on uh, acquisition of, of audio description stuff. So maybe I don't need to mention audio description as much, but um, obviously audio description is one of the areas where I'm heavily interested. And um, so it's exciting to me as a new Amazonian that we're, Amazonian. that's what we call ourselves. Uh, okay. um, uh, that we we're um, we're at a point now where Amazon really gets it about video accessibility for the for blind people and um, and they get it and they're moving they're moving in the right direction and they're moving very they're moving very quickly and with great intent so to me that's super exciting because it means that um, we can really look forward to uh, um, a constantly improving non-visual experience with Amazon Video. And that's, uh, I think that all of us can be um, really, really excited about that. So um, are there, if there are any questions about, um, about the tablets or voice view or um, prime video accessibility, maybe we should take some of those questions now. Do we have a, a, yeah. a mic that yeah. can be run as well? Yeah. Stay here. I'm just bringing this around to you here. Cool. All right, Carl, coming to you with the mic. So, <clears throat> this is pertaining to video accessibility. Brian brought up the question to Peter about cord cutting. As I think eventually over-the-top cable boxes are going to be going away, and most people are going to be doing streaming through smart TV or, or smart TV devices. Is there a way that when, say, Pluto TV or Sling TV work with you guys that you guys can encourage them to do a not only screen reader accessibility but ask them to carry the audio description can Amazon use their influence as a large market share to say hey can you include the audio description over the streaming of these devices because I think slowly cable is going to be dying and streaming services are going to be coming more and more popular. Yeah I think Peter mentioned Peter sort of uh, alluded to that earlier um, and of course you know we're um, we're interested in, in uh, improving our services as uh, in in every way we can. So that's that's just one of the ways that we're we're looking at um, making improvements to to video. Yeah, Peter, you want to add anything to that? I mean, thank you, thank you for the suggestion. Um, in general, I mean, having having been in this field now, approaching three decades, uh, the voice of the customer, directly speaking is generally louder than the voice of industry colleagues saying to their colleagues, hey, this, this would be nice. And I think particularly an organization with ACB's long experience and history in the space of, of uh, successfully driving audio description uh, support, uh, that might be the more effective path to go. But we are very, very happy to help in any way we can when those vendors are are wanting to do so on our platforms. And I, I did um, uh, drop a note to uh, the uh, product manager of uh, um, uh, audio description at Prime Video while we've been talking and I asked him what, what the email address is for us to, to send, for customers to send suggestions. Um, he may. He, it's possible that he will write back to me before the end of the session. Um, 
other questions? Other questions? Yes. Here you are. My question is about Alexa, so can I ask it or not? Sure. Okay, because he said specifically other no, things. No, no. So. Okay. Um, all of your questions are of interest to us. I, um, I discovered I could create a playlist using Alexa, and um, I am sure that some of the songs that I got on my playlist I paid for, and I started noticing that I st if I added... Once I started adding more songs, some of the other ones that I had thought I purchased went away. Huh. So how much storage space is there on whatever Alexa platform or wherever it's stored? And where did my songs that I purchased go? <laughs> I don't know. It's, maybe the ghost of Steve Jobs is stealing them. I, <laughs> so, so, wow. Um, my, my wife blames everything on the ghost of Steve Jobs. Whenever, whenever something doesn't work, she, she says it's the ghost of Steve Jobs. So that was not a, uh, that was not a particular Apple slam. I'm sorry. Um, uh, so so um, I don't know specifically I'm an Apple what lover. you're experiencing, but uh, any music that you purchase... Well, so first off, um, with Alexa... Um, Nothing Alexa specific is stored on the device, whether it's an Echo, an Echo Dot, uh, an Echo Show. Everything is, is completely in the cloud. Your Kindle books that she reads, your Audible books, the music that she plays, all of that is solely in the cloud. Um, and and even, even when you buy things and are streaming them, anything that's streaming is also streaming from the cloud. So this won't be about running out of storage. Um, without knowing more about exactly what happened, I, I can't speak to the specifics. If I knew what happened, I Well, of course. If you knew what happened, you could tell. We can look into it. Um, yes, Brian. I think I currently own three generations of Fire tablets. What's the downward compatibility for the kinds of things you were discussing, Josh? Um, I believe, and Peter can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but uh, he will. Um, uh, I believe that all of all of the um, the updates that we send go to all of our tablets, and as far as I know. All of the all of the updates will will updates will update all of your hardware. Um, I don't think there's a restriction on. Um, so when it when it comes to Fire tablets, um, that is that is mostly true. Um, anything running Fire OS five or later, which goes back something like four years, five years now. Um, has the latest voice view. Um, any Fire TV going back to the very first one that we sold four or five years ago has the latest voice view, has the latest magnifier. I cannot promise that we will continue to do this indefinitely. Um, at some point, um, 
um, we, we won't be able to do that. Um, we are not updating everything to Fire OS 6 and 7. We have quite a few devices that remain on Fire OS 5 and will never be updated from Fire OS 5, but we are separately updating um, the, the VoiceView screen reader on many of those older devices. And we will continue to do so as long as it is feasible, um, but I do imagine a time when that will no longer be feasible. And you'll need to spend another $49 to get the latest 7-inch tablet. And 99, thank you. And 99 cents. Can't forget the 99 cents. Yeah, Jeff. Higher end. Yeah. Do you, do you recommend buying the higher end uh, tablets? You know, the 89 dollar. I mean, besides storage, is there any reason for us to upgrade to those higher end tablets? So when you when you look at our tablets, we've got the seven inch, the eight inch. HD and the 10-inch HD. So the HD models have more pixels. So anyone who's using magnification or large font, that will be a better choice. The 8 and 10-inch models have a slightly faster processor, have a little bit more RAM. So they are faster, they are more snappy than the 7-inch. Finally, the 8 and 10-inch have stereo speakers and uh, Dolby uh, functionality built in. So for audio reasons, the 8 and 10 may be a better choice than the 7. So if you're primarily focused on Braille, not a lot of reason to go with an 8 or 10. Um, but uh, for audio reasons, the 8 and 10. And the 8 is not much more money than the 7. We know lots and lots of blind people uh, seem to prefer the 8 as sort of the sweet spot ideal. Um, yeah. Uh, any other questions? Otherwise, I think we'll probably move on to the next presenter. Okay. Who's next? All right, so now we're going to move on uh, to another company. And again, keep in mind, my interest is to try to reward those who listen to us by giving them a chance to speak with us. Uh, and Marty is such an individual. Those who have been involved with uh, playing anything from blindfold games know that it started, you know, with just a little idea, and then it blossomed and blossomed and blossomed some more until there are now, what, around 50? 81. Oh, pardon me, 81. God, I read the wrong, wrong page. 81 such games out there, and they're all on Jeff's phone here, so he's got a lot more time to play games than I do. No, I didn't say that. Uh-huh. Anyway, nonetheless... Uh, you know, nothing stays still. So Marty wasn't satisfied with just doing games and started creating some interesting utilities. And uh, to expand his company, it used to be Marty was the company, you know. I am Egypt, you know, that kind of thing. Well, he's now part of a team of 10.
So are we talking potential for expansion? Yep, and a second round of, of funding is being sought to expand yet again. So I want to turn it over to Marty, who is going to tell us all about what's new at Blindfold Games, etc. Marty, Thank it's you. yours. Thank you. Thank you. So I assume everyone here, thank you. I assume everyone here has hold, heard of Blindfold Games. Okay, well, it, it got its real launch separate from me doing this as a STEM project to kind of teach um, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders how to build an app which started Wish to Listen. If any of you have heard my podcasts that have been on multiple times, it has a story unto itself. But after we finished uh, Blindfold Racer, uh, I got an email from Brian um, saying, the next time you're up in Boston, because I had commute back and forth between Boston and Miami for some of the companies I was still on the board of, up in Boston. He said, next time you're in the area, could you stop by um, the Carroll Center? I'd like to speak to you face to face. That's great. So I happened to be in Boston. This is back in 2012. And he says, um, I'm not going to be in the office today. Do you mind coming by my house? I live about a block and a half from the, uh, the Perkins School. I said, okay. So I drive over, get to his house, knock on the door. And then waiting for me there are four people and their guide dogs. Mind you, this is the first time in my life I have interacted with somebody with a guide dog. And I, I walk in, you know, all the dogs are nice and everyone's kind of sitting around and it's, it's Kim and Brian and Judy and Doug. Um, and they, they told me they had been up like almost all night playing blindfold races so they could tell me what they liked and what they didn't like about the game. <laughs> and at that meeting, um, and I probably spent four or five hours there, they kind of told me what made a game fun, uh, what I should avoid in games, and I think uh, Judy asked me for a 9 by 9 Sudoku game at that point. Uh, Kim asked me for um, a solitaire game. And I think Brian asked me, I think you asked me for a cryptogram game. Yes. Okay. And those were the first three games I went back and, and did. And so, like, since I was semi-retired, I was like popping out a game every month. And then I started. Then when the um, blindfold race had jumped to the top of the accessibility games list on the App Store, I started hearing from people all across the world. So. Over the course of four or five years, uh, I think Blindfold Racer has been downloaded 57,000 times. Games in total have been downloaded over a half million times. That's like back in January or so this year. I've published about 80 different games, and um, I'm probably the person responsible for more visually impaired people wasting time than anybody else in the world. Except the makers of Dice World. <laughs> so, uh, um, it's separate from the games being used for educational purposes, which I'll get to in a minute, um, two of the games actually have fallen more into the category of utilities than entertainment. And the first one started by me uh, about three years ago, listening to the fireworks on a July 4th, or maybe four years ago. And I realized that fireworks are as interesting to listen to as to hear. So I quickly whip up a little uh, app that I put out there called Blindfold Fireworks and people are playing with it. And then somebody says, hey, can you take that, that, the sound effects in Fireworks and combine it with other sound effects and make the equivalent of an, an e-card app, but instead of sending out videos that have an audio description of it saying, you know, cute little dog in the middle of the field, but actually let people be able to select from a collection of sound effects and put together their own audio e-card and let people be able to send this e-card via the common methods, be it posted on Facebook, send it to email, or text it, or up on Twitter. So I found a collection of about 300 audio um, sound effects. I think the first version went out there where you basically pick a sound effect, 
record your audio, it packages it up together, and then you stores it up in the cloud and sends it out somewhere. That was pretty popular, and then actually uh, had some people say they don't want to record their own voice, they want to do their own, um, they want the system to automatically turn their voice into speech. Um, so thanks to some of the Amazon um, Poly speech services, we let you pick kind of what voice you want to go out in, what accent, what language, and it'll kind of package it up and, and send it out, and, and you can send that MP3 file to somebody else that they listen to. So that was the first utility we did. And then um, I actually have a group of about 50 testers uh, who are uh, completely blind worldwide who give me feedback on the games. Whenever I produce a game, uh, inevitably I get everything wrong and through a process of refinement over about the course of two to three months, it, it turns into something really good. And one of them wrote to me saying, I was out for a stroll with my guide dog and Another dog got into a fight with a guide dog and they started running around me and she ends up falling down. Her dog got hurt a little and she got hurt a little. And she said, wouldn't it be uh, really cool if you could build an app that instead of me trying to putz with my Apple iPhone and bring up the video to record what's going on, can you do something that as soon as you start this app, it starts recording video out of the, the back camera. So, so in these stressful situations, I can just launch the app and it records everything. And I thought, that doesn't sound all that hard. That's a good idea. So it took about two or three weeks to build out the app and I put it out there and I started getting all sorts of suggestions from people about how to make the app better, implemented those and put it out, I think about two years ago. And I think about three or 4,000 people are downloading this completely free app as a way to deal with highly stressful situations, as a way to deal with situations where services are denied, which gets back to uh, the equal access concepts and, and look at things. And now I, I've, I haven't taken the next step, which is to partner with one of the organizations to promote it, but it probably makes sense at some point to, to look into that, which is here we have an, a completely free app that if you're in a situation where you're being denied service, to be able to record that and then start the process to make sure that organization doesn't repeat that bad behavior. I think that's what, I, you know, I think that's what happened to Uber, not through this app, but seeing enough complaints about it. So that's kind of the utility things we've been doing. Um, the, we have a number of apps that we've built that are, that are specifically designed to teach assistive technology gestures. Um, and I know Kim, you love, you told me you love this one, which is it starts, it's like the game My Simon or Simon Says, um, where it starts out very simply and you basically says, tap the screen and you tap it. And then it proceeds to get faster and faster giving you instructions. And if you go through all levels of this game, starting with tapping and swiping, it works up that you have to practice doing everything to teach the, to, to know how to use the rotor. And that game amongst, and that's called Mindful Bop Gesture. So it starts, say, tap, swipe up, swipe down, swipe up, swipe up, swipe down. It gets faster and faster and faster. And, I, and like Blindfold Racer, I used my uh, daughter's voice on that one as well as uh, because it's the expression and the emotion that she puts into it that makes it successful. And, and if you listen to Blindfold Racer and her voice there, and you listen to, to Blindfold Bop Gesture, you'll actually hear the difference between a 12-year-old girl and an obnoxious 17-year-old teenager. <laughs> um, so what led me down the path I'm on right now where we've evolved blindfold games into objective ed is talking to a lot of the heads of the schools for the blind, 
talking to a lot of the people who run the lighthouses across the country, talking to people like Kim and Brian um, in, and Judy in understanding that the education uh, that uh, visually impaired kids are giving in school, especially in the pre-K through th third grade years, th they're at a significant disadvantage to their sighted peers. And when I start hearing from teachers of visually impaired students and orientation and mobility specialists saying, we're already using some of your blindfold games to solve that, I realized that we could make a significant difference in the community for that because we come from a unique background. And my specific background is I'm a serial software entrepreneur. I've started about five different companies, took one of them public, successfully sold the others, and I'm at a point in my life where I can give back to a community. So one of those companies we built along the way was a company that uh, automated the, proce of the process of the IEP, it's uh, special education management. Does everyone, do people know what an IEP is? Okay. So we were the biggest vendor in Massachusetts and Texas. And we ended up selling that company about three years ago. So the team I had worked with, I was one of the co-founders, the team I had worked with and, um, had a lot of experience in special education. I, through this hobby, had a lot of experience in building accessible audio games. We realized there's a need in designing gamified education for visually impaired students uh, pre-K through 12th grade, and we could take all this together and launch a new company, which is what we did. It's called Objective Ed, and we raised our, our kind of our seed round last summer and about to raise um, a, a Series A round this coming summer where we're building gamified education using off-the-shelf technology like the iPad um, to teach through games all the skills in the expanded core curriculum. So whether it's a, a sensory efficiency skill, whether it's an ad adaptive skill, whether it's uh, early braille literacy, we're coming out with games in each of these areas. And to date, um, we've so far we've built out about eight games. Over the next month or two, we'll be announcing some major distribution deals, some major grants we've won, uh, some major prizes. One of the innovations we actually came up with uh, was where we take a sheet of braille text on a, pa on a standard piece of paper. You put that on the iPad, and the iPad knows what's on that sheet of braille. No. Yes way. Okay. <laughs> and the way it does it is, is and we've applied for a patent and all for this, but what's interesting here is, if you think about Braille, it's, it's a fixed size cell, a character size, which means you know what's in the upper left corner is going to be the first piece of first letter Braille on that page. And you know three positions over that is going to be the fourth letter. Well, if you know what was on that piece of paper, and you know which piece of paper, which Braille sheet you're putting on the iPad, and you can make that correspondence, the iPad now has the intelligence to know what's on that sheet of Braille. And when we started prototyping this for the, uh, for the Touch of Genius Award, Louis Braille Touch of Genius Award, we said, how thick can the paper be that you put on an iPad to still feel your finger press? So we figured, let's try it. So we took a standard loose leaf piece of paper. It worked. We took three sheets of paper together. It worked. We took a business card. It worked. We took two business cards, it worked some of the time. Now, what we found out is a, the, a sheet of Braille is usually embossed on an 80-pound piece of paper and sometimes on a 120-pound paper. 
Since, we were since both of those are thinner than, a bit than two business cards, everything was working. The way the system works is you enter the, the text that you want to put on the sheet of Braille into our web dashboard, and then we assign that sheet of Braille a number. You print it out on either a Perkins Braille, or you type it, we show you on the screen, which is accessible, what it should be, or simply print the, the uh, BRF file on any sort of um, Braille embosser, and stick it on the iPad, and at that point you know. And from that, we've built a bunch of games. So let's say you're a teacher, and you're teaching, um, you're teaching a child contractions, and the child really loves horses, and, and let's say you're in Boston. So you write a short story about horses, and then you, and you have the, the, this braille sheet printed out, and then you include a number of questions. The child goes home, puts a sheet of braille on their iPad, and they read it, and then they, they ask them the first question, which is, where does the horse sleep at night? The child reads through the braille story, finds the word barn, and double taps the screen. Of course, in this case, barn is contracted because of the AR contraction. It dings a couple of times, it gets points, and it moves ahead. So not only are we creating braille sheets such as consonant, vowel, consonant uh, word sheets or sight words or any other common things, we're letting teachers create their own braille sheets to work specifically with their kids. Well, when I told this idea to uh, Diane Browner, who writes for Perkins Path of Technologies, and Penny Rosenblum, who is at the University of Arizona, she said, Marty, you're missing the big picture. I said, what do you mean? She said, it's all good and well that teachers can create their own sheets, but why don't you let teachers share sheets with each other? So we added to our infrastructure the ability that once you create a Braille sheet with the corresponding order of questions, you can put it up in our cloud-based repository. Now consider the teacher in Seattle, and he has a boy who's also visually impaired, also loves horses, and is also learning those type of contractions. He can download that Braille sheet, print it out, pick his own audio questions and other audio questions, and now he, without having to create any lesson content, can be teaching, uh, giving the kid a story uh, thing to play at home. Hmm. Now, we've done a, a couple of Braille sheet games as well, such as Word Hunt and Hangman, and we're coming out with more and more Braille sheet games all designed around the concept of teachers being able to create their own content and share content with all the other teachers. And we've built a professional network around this. So if you think of LinkedIn as a professional network where you're job seeking, here we built a professional network where teachers can put up content, share content with others, comment on their content, and help, out, help each other out. Now this, the same way we're doing lesson content sharing for Braille Sheets, we have a whole game infrastructure that we're building for the orientation mobility games or any parts of the expanded core curriculum or any parts of um, core curriculum like um, a spelling or uh, science or math. So let's say you build out a Jeopardy game and you put, and let's say there's a history Jeopardy game and a teacher comes up with these questions. They have a, an objective at Jeopardy game that they're playing. They pull down content for say six, some sort of sixth grade geography thing and they pull it out, they create the, the questions and answers, and then once they're done, they, have it with, they work with their kid, they can now store their, con their questions and, and Jeopardy answers up in, the, up in the repository. So, and 
And um, if you're working with, say, Objective Ed's Barnyard game and you've defined different skill levels, because Barnyard, if you're familiar with Blindfold Barnyard, is really a matter of finding an animal on the screen through clock directions and then dragging you to a fence through compass directions. That game, Objective Ed Barnyard now, has 40 different skill levels that will take a child from simple laterality, left, right, all the way through the clock and compass directions up to touch and drag concepts. Um, teachers can tailor any of those levels and then share them with any of the other teachers on the network. So, yes, um, let me bring the mic over to you. I should probably wait till you're done. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, I'm wondering if there's implications for this for blind parents and grandparents to, I was just thinking about how I helped my granddaughter with spelling words the other day and she had to read them to me first so I could write them down so I could quiz her on them. So could parents work with uh, sighted children's teachers to get into, have application of this? Um, I haven't really looked at any of these things in terms of sighted uh, parents working with sighted children for this type of stuff because there's so much stuff that's already out there. Um, however, one of the key things when working with a visually impaired child if you're a sighted parent is for one, you probably don't know Braille and secondly, you don't really know all the things your orientation and mobility specialists know to work with it, which is why for every one of these games that we've built, um, we want the games to be sufficiently motivating and almost addicting that the child can play on his own, but the parent, the parent can go to the web dashboard, which is an accessible dashboard, and actually see the child gaining skills. Now, what I learned when I was talking to Diane and Penny and, and many other teachers of visually impaired students and orientation mobility specialists is when they're teaching a child a skill, they only see this child about once a week, maybe twice a week, and in places like North Dakota, once a month. Um, which means the child didn't get much of a chance to practice that skill because the child doesn't practice when the teacher's not around. The parent doesn't know how to help them practice. Their regular ed teacher doesn't know much about what they're supposed to be doing. She's too busy with the other students. The paraprofessional doesn't know. Because our games are so motivating, the kids practice when they're not, around, when they're not with their TVI or their O&M. So the kid is actually making progress week over week, which means they're acquiring these ECC skills sooner they're achieving the literacy goals and, and education sooner and achieving independence sooner. So that's kind of where we're coming and um, what we're working on. So to date, we, um, I've been kind of going out to all these AER conferences and, and other O&M conferences for the past year. It's like every week I'm at a different conference. I think I've worked my way up to Platinum Pro on American. Uh, and we have about... Uh, 700 or so teachers who want to participate in our pilots, which started this summer. We're actually going through three levels of pilots, and we hope to actually start distributing um, the curriculum, and this whole gamified curriculum in September, and we're kind of right on track on that. Um, so that's what we've been up to. Um, and while a lot of these uh, games are really focused on pre-K through 12th grade students, all based around their individual educational plan, uh, we're getting a lot of requests from visual rehabilitation therapists and others that want to use these with adults who are either um, just are newly blind and they need to reacquire re certain skills. And through gaming, we make it a lot of fun. Um, it's unlikely that adults over 40 will take the time to learn Braille, but that option is there. Um, another invention that, that, we're, do, that we're working on um, is 
people, uh, and, and this was really came out of a conversation with, with Kirk Adams and a few other people um, out at CSUN where we were given the uh, Touch of Genius Award. We noticed that uh, from everything we learned, when a student is learning Braille and learning how to read and they're first using their Braille display, they usually have a teacher with them correcting them when they make a mistake as they read the Braille. So basically the student is reading and speaks aloud and the teacher checks what they're doing. And we thought, I wonder whether we could come up with a way that the student can do these same type of activities within the context of a game and not always need the teacher there. And we thought, why don't we use speech recognition? We could basically send the line of text, the dog sniffed at the cat, to the braille display. The student, as she reads it, reads, the dog sniffed the cat. If the student speaks it correctly, we know the child read that, line, that braille line correctly. If the student speaks something else, we know which word they got wrong because we're converting their speech back to text, we're comparing it, and then we know what else to feed them. So we're kind of using speech recognition AI to help students progress in their braille faster to improve their literacy. And the other thing we're doing is we're collecting all this data. As students play any of the games, the, bra the Braille literacy games, the orientation mobility games, the assistive technology games, we're saving anonymized every piece of data about their game playing experience and their success. There are about 60,000 students across the United States who are visually impaired. Let's say we have 10,000, 20,000 students over a few years start to use our system. Over the course of five or 10 years, we will have an immense amount of data of what methods work to teach certain skills and what methods don't work. Whether the student is developmentally normal, whether the student is developmentally behind, okay, we will be able to ascertain through machine learning the best practices for teaching certain skills. So we, we see that as part of our future. The other thing, if you think about our professional network, one of the biggest problems that every single state across this country, every single school for the blind, is there is a shortage of TVIs and O&Ms. Very few new ones are coming out. Those new ones don't have a lot of experience. And there's a lot retiring at the other end. Well, here we have a professional network where people are putting up content. Well, I don't know if this will happen, but it would be a nice result which is the same way people comment to each other on some of these Facebook groups and some of these LinkedIn groups. If we can establish a way where some of the people who are very experienced teachers can start mentoring online with some of the younger teachers coming out, these younger teachers would be able to achieve um, much better results with their students more quickly. So that's kind of what I've been up to. That, you know, that's how I spent my summer. Um, if you have any questions, what I'd like is your permission to record it. So if you have ideas on what games we should build next or what approaches we should take for education, I'd love to hear it. So let me just turn on my, my um, th thing first. Okay, I'm recording here. Let me give you the mic. So <clears throat> this is more of a comment. So my wife make personal handmade greeting cards, which I can't compete with when it comes to anniversaries and birthdays and things. So I've used your blindfold greeting app to create personal audio messages, and she just loved it, and it makes a big difference. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'll come around. 
Here you go. Oh, hi, thank hi. you. Um, I just wonder where I can get a list of all the games you're making available. I want to also comment on your instant recorder denial of service app. You need to come talk to me. I'm the president of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, and we would love to partner with you. And we have about a thousands of guide dog users who would love that app. Um, and the final thing, have you talked to OSEP, the Office of Special Education Programs? Because they need to know about the data you're collecting. It's phenomenal. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, there are three things you brought up. Firstly, uh, if you visit for the Blindfold Games, blindfoldgames.org. I have a two-line description for every one of those games. Blindfoldgames.org. Um, the second question was about um, the Blindfold video. Okay, um, That's up there as well. Now, since you're Guide Dog with the Blinds, one of the um, games that people had been bugging me about to build for the longest time is a blindfold version of a Tamaguchi. If you remember that from the 1970s and I think 1990s. And I decided as an audio game that would be really boring. But there are so many really cool sound effects of dogs in a public domain on the net. So I spent, you know, for about three years ago I collected all the dog sounds and then I think about a year ago I started on Blindfold Doggy. And Blindfold Doggy is an app where you have to take care of a virtual dog. And then you have to take it, you have to bring it out to, to pee and poop, you have to feed it, you have to play with it, you have to throw toys. And then in a more advanced version, you act, the, every time you do something good, you get virtual coins and points, and then you have to go to the, into town and take your dog for a walk. And if you, get, if you want to go away on vacation for a while, you can put your dog into a kennel and pay for the kennel. But that game is a lot of fun. And the cool part about that game is it's not the type of game you play continuously. You have your phone, you're playing the game, and then you say, okay, I gotta, you know, have to do some things around the house. But if your dog has to go out, it's going to send you a note, notifications. You know, your phone's going to be notifying you saying, you know, your little dog Rover needs to pee, okay, because it's been about four hours. So we have that, but I'd be glad to work with you guys, on, with guide dogs, um, to do this for two purposes. One, let people know about it. More importantly, if people are thinking about getting a do guide dog, they better know what they're in for. <laughs> and then your, your last thing, I, um, I had a conversation with like four different people over at um, uh, DOE and different, uh, uh, things in DOE, including OSC, about things. And they showed us slews of grants we can go for. Um, but right now, we're only 10 people. And to go for one of those grants, uh, we'll need a grant writer. We'll need to uh, participate with a couple universities on that. Um, we are, have already been um, contacted by some people at NCCU. I don't know if any of you people know Sean Tecum or uh, William Weil, and, uh, and of course, Penny Rosenblum. And they're all going to be launching studies with us to prove on the efficacy of the games. Sure. Any other questions? Or, and, and like, like Brian said, I, I don't want to just be a talking head. So if you have ideas, uh, ideas or suggestions or anything we should be doing, let me know. Because everything that you've heard here came out of the ideas of other people. Well, consider that most of these games uh, cost between three and five dollars. There's not a lot of money in this. Okay. <laughs> so let, let me pass the mic to who's ever next, and uh, does that would be you, Ray? You want to help now? I guess I guess it's me. 
went away. There we go. Okay. I go waving my hands out here like, of course it's going to be right in front of me. And of course it was not. What, are you blind or something? Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, do cleanup at the end of this presentation, again, I want to thank all those who presented up to this point. I think you can see that they are as interested in listening as they are in talking to you. So when you see them in the hallways, because they're not leaving today, when you see them in the hallways or whatever, you know, bend their ear. That's what they're here for, that interaction with a group of users or potential users, okay? Now, uh, when we were putting together this program, we said, well, you know, we can't really keep race shut up for the whole thing. <laughs> That's just not in the card, so we better give them a role to play that we could all benefit from. And Ray's had an interesting path in recent years where he now works at United Airlines in the field of accessibility to the United Airlines uh, company. And as part of that, he's been on kind of both sides of the, so that website isn't accessible, now what? question. So I asked him if he would please do us the honor of doing just that. Tell us a bit about what what that whole process is like and what you can do about it. And as he just told me, his presentation is short so that he can have a lot of discussion with people rather than talking at you. So ladies and gentlemen, Secretary... Hold on one second, Brian. Yeah? We need one more thing from people. Do you want me to... Oh, yeah. So, in order for us to get paid for this from the committee, we need your tickets. So, if you can uh, get them out and we'll uh, see if someone might be willing to round them up, that'd be great. Oh, here. Um, yeah, so we would appreciate that. I forgot mine. Ray forgot his. So, I guess the program is now. Oh, no. All right. Thank you, Brian. And um, actually, um, just to um, Brian kind of summarize my path in the last few years where uh, I've been working with United Airlines. And I'm often put into a position where I have to say to somebody, well, this isn't accessible. And they're going, okay, so what does that mean? And so I got, and actually, though, the idea for this presentation came from my lovely wife, actually. And um, it came about because she was talking to me about a, uh, a, uh, a, a something that happened to her at work where the uh, place she works for had decided that they were going to set up an online portal for employees to go in and look at their pay stubs every couple of weeks when they get paid. So she was telling me about this and she says, you know, I don't think it's accessible. And I said, well, you know, maybe we'll take a look at that one of these days. But I got to thinking, it's like, you know, how do you communicate when something, a website, an app, isn't accessible when maybe you're not a, you know, expert technology person? Maybe you're a beginner. Maybe you're somebody that, you know, knows enough about technology to do the things you need to do. And, uh, <clears throat> and you are uh, out there and you're trying to work. You're just using 
uh, apps and websites and things to get stuff done and you run into an issue? And how do you, as the maybe non-techie person, communicate that to somebody who may be just as non-technical as you are, the customer service person, the, um, the um, uh, person that's you know, taking the, right, you know, the tech support uh, desk person who's writing the trouble ticket that goes to the real experts and that kind of thing. You know, we've all been there with um, the uh, tech support people who say, well, what's the number on the uh, modem? And it says, and you say, okay, I, I'm blind. I can't tell. Well, I can't help you then, you know, because of that. So, so I thought what I would do this afternoon is maybe talk about, kind of in general terms, about some things that I think would be helpful for all of us to help each other, you know, basically understand how to report things that aren't accessible or that we think aren't accessible. Um, and, and actually, they, if, if, we, if we believe they're not accessible, they're not accessible to us because we have difficulty doing whatever it is we're doing. And, you know, it's kind of like beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. So the first thing I think is really important is be as clear as you possibly can be about what it is you can't do or are having difficulty doing. For example, um, maybe you have an app that, um, and, and I'll take this example of something I just reported to Clark and Claire recently regarding the Amtrak app. And that was that um, I was, um, so you're, you go into this app, you, 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 you tap on a box to, a double tap on a text box to enter some information and the box never opens. It never says, is editing, if you're using iOS, for example. And so how do you communicate that to someone? Well, basically what you would want to say in, in, in those kinds of cases is that, hey, you know, I tried to enter my train number to see what train status was. I couldn't enter that information because I, I use the voiceover screen reader, and when I double tap, which is how I make it so I can type information into boxes, the box never, it never, I never, the on-screen keyboard never popped up so I could type in that information. And so that would be one thing, and therefore you say, you know, therefore I can't check train status with your app. I have to call on the telephone or do some other way, if you're, say, using the Amtrak site. So make it clear what you can't do, and if you can, as best as possible, explain why you can't do it. Uh, another part of that that I think is really helpful, if you're using a screen reader, if you can, uh, through uh, just you know, remembering what, it's, what was said and writing it down in your report, if you're sending a, a written a tech support uh, complaint of some sort, or if you can uh, pick up, you know, use NVDA Speech Viewer or JAWS Speech History, uh, say if you're on the PC, uh, to pick up what is being said. Uh, that basically, if you can communicate to somebody, hey, this is what my screen reader says when I come to this button. And it doesn't make any sense to me. It's, you know, and basically say, if it's saying file slash, slash file slash uh, ch check out chkout.jpg, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And if you can communicate that to the person you're writing to or, or talking to, then you can say, and you can say to them, hey, look, you know, this wouldn't make any sense to you. It doesn't make any sense to me. It, it needs to be a more clear description of what that control does. And so if you can communicate that, that's good too. 
Um, if you can also explain, um, and, and, I say get, and I say get real specific, because if you can say, well, you know, hey, um, I can, uh, for example, uh, if I'm using an app, you know, maybe something works on the keyboard, but I'm not always going to have my keyboard with me. So, um, you know, when I do, when I, when I do this thing using an Apple wireless keyboard, and people can relate to that because a lot of sighted people have them too, and uh, that you can say, um, when I use the screen on my phone, it doesn't work, but when I use the keyboard, it does, or maybe vice versa. If you can be clear about that, that's, uh, that's a possibility. Um, another thing too that I would do is, sometimes one of the things you'll run into, especially on, um, not as much anymore, but there may be some out there, some sites where you've got, all, you can fill in all the form fields, but then there's this thing that just says submit. Doesn't tell you it's a button, doesn't tell you, it may be, if you're lucky, it'll say it's clickable. Um, we've all heard that one before. So, um, and if you cannot get that to work with your keyboard, then what you need to say, then when you're filing that complaint or filing that review, you want to say, look, you know, I was able to enter, type in all the information. I use a keyboard, I use a screen reader, or even if you don't use a screen reader, um, if you're just a keyboard user, maybe that you may be using magnification, or if you're, you know, somebody that's has some vision and has a motor skill difficulty, or just prefers to use the keyboard, you go through that form and you hit the submit button and say, you know, when I press the enter key or press the space bar, that didn't that didn't work and that's how I submit information um, using, using my technology. You know, if you're on a desktop or if you try to double tap it and it doesn't do anything, um, that's true. I had a there was a situation recently with the Lyft app where maybe some of you experienced this. They fixed it now, but um, they had done something where in the Lyft app where you can add, a, add multiple stops. Um, so you want to add a stop to a ride you're setting up, and what would happen is you tap on the add stop, and then it would pop open the edit box. That was fine. The keyboard would come up, you'd type in whatever it was you wanted to type in, and then you hit the search button, and it wouldn't, and it would bring up the stops, but you couldn't double tap them to act to pick the one you wanted. It wouldn't go through uh, with voiceover. Um, that was um, something that. Um, uh, was I, I, I tried to figure out where exactly to go to report that, and luckily they fixed it before I had to. Uh, so, but again, be real clear about what it is, what difficulties you're having, and and don't you don't you don't have to put it in necessarily. You don't have to have you know your techie buddy come over and have explained. Well, I can't click this button because this piece of of code is some doesn't have all the right aria and all this stuff. You don't need to know all that. Just be clear on what you can't do, or what you're having difficulty doing, and be specific about what issues you're having. And uh, if you can <clears throat> describe them in a way that uh, basically makes sense to the person you're talking to, where, for example, in, in let's get back to Karen's case, because I can't open and independently view my pay stub because of this, that, and the other thing that issues that I'm having. Uh, that's 
that's that's something people can understand. Um, they don't have to know screen readers. They don't have to know screen magnification, other technology. They just need to know that you you have difficulty doing something. Obviously, the best thing you can do, if you have the ability to show people what your issues are, to demonstrate for someone what the issues are that you're having, that can someone that can make a difference. That's that's always the best. If not. Um, one of the other things you can do, especially, and it's real easy on iOS to do, is if, uh, I don't know how to do it on Android, can't remember, I think there's, I'm sure there's a way to do it, but if you can take a screenshot, and doing a screenshot is real easy on iOS, because what you can then do is if you have a screen that's giving you some problems, and uh, you are, you, you hit, you hold down your, you hit the home button and the power button if you have a home button on your device. I don't know what you do with some of the newer devices I, that don't have home buttons on them. So, um, but if you have home button, home and power at the same time, it'll take a screenshot and then that screenshot's in your photo library. You can then um, uh, use that to uh, file your complaint you sh share the screenshot with them. You just attach it to whatever you're sending in or insert it, and then you say, "Well, this is what it says. It may say on this may be the checkout screen. This is what I'm hearing, and that there because of that, it doesn't make I, I'm unable to figure out exactly how I need to go about putting in my payment information, whatever it is. So that's what I wanted to talk about this afternoon a little bit. Just kind of make people feel like. You don't have to be a technology expert to report problems that you're having. If you're just the average user, as I said, it's trying to get stuff done, that's, you can do it. And I'd like to pause and take some just questions or discussion if anybody has any issues they want to talk about with me. Hey, Ray, it's Darian. Hey, Darian. Um, so can you go a step farther? So one thing is, I usually have to explain what screen reader means to a lot of companies. Um, and so I do that. I just say it's speech software and, you know, I describe it. But, but um, if they don't know how to make it accessible or um, know what to do, then there's a website you can refer them to, right, that um, gives guidelines and standards? Um, yes. So can you repeat, do you there, know that? There certainly is. Um, you can go to the, uh, the, the best uh, resource, if you're talking web accessibility, um, the best resource is the worldwide web, still the Worldwide Web Consortium, www.w3c.org. That's one site you can go to, www.w3c.org. Um, it's actually, when you actually, if you, if you bring up like the direct links to the guidelines, it actually goes somewhere else, but uh, I, don't remember, I don't remember that part of it, but you can get to all the stuff from there. The other real good site that I like is, um, the other good site I like is WebAIM, Web Accessibility in Mind. They have all kinds of, of research that they've done and articles on how to make things more, make things more accessible. Um, WebAIM.org. I'm sorry. www.webaim.org. Yeah, they're out of Logan, Utah. They're part of Utah State, I think. And uh, 
That's a, a real good uh, site. The, the third one you might want to refer to, and I don't remember what the site is, but you can Google it. So if you're having trouble, say, with PDFs um, and um, the um, and and the and the the the, the PDF one, the PDF standard is PDF Universal Accessibility, PDFUA. Uh, you can Google that and you can find uh, information on, on that, uh, that standard. And a word about PDFs, and I, and I told somebody this, somebody said, asked me, they said, well, how do you explain to somebody when they send you a PDF because they think they're sending you an electronic file, right? And they say, oh, well, it's electronic. Of course, of course it's going to be accessible. Well, and we all, we've all been there. We get the scanned image PDF that our screen reader says, alert, empty document. Well, um, what, what, I, what I taught people, told people to do is basically say, say that, that that image is when is the same as when a copier takes a picture of a page and makes a copy of it. It just takes a picture of that page. It doesn't do the optical character recognition. So you basically say all it's doing is making a scan of that page, but it's not recognizing and converting the characters on that page to text. I, I told somebody, I said, that's what you need to do. So, so, so when you, what you tell them is when you're doing the PDF, do the scan, scan the material in, but then do whatever tool you're using, do the optical character recognition and or OCR. Most of these tools that people use, it'll say OCR, and if you can tell them that, that's um, something that'll help as well. Right. Yeah. Sure, Jeff. So uh, Ray talked about showing things, uh, you know, as a great way of teaching. Um, there's a couple of really great strategies that you can use, and all of them are free. So let me um, give you a couple of them. Uh, the first one is, you know, many of you who may have been in meetings uh, throughout this convention so far may have heard of Zoom. Everyone know what Zoom is? Okay. Zoom allows you to set up a meeting with yourself. Now you think, well, why would I want to have a meeting with myself? Because you can record yourself, and you can record your screen, and you can rec record your screen reader output. So not only can you show them visually what's happening, but you can show them verbally as well. It's a great teaching tool. And it saves in, in very high quality image, you know, video, and uh, as well as audio. So you can, you know, output it in both formats. Now the next thing I'm going to tell you is, is something that we're seeing, um, which, which may or may not happen, but, if it, but I believe that it will. Um, in iOS 13, you, you, there is an ability in, in iOS today where you can record a screen video so you can demo, yeah, screen record. But the problem with it today in iOS 12 is it does not record voiceover speech. That's changing in iOS 13. So this will again allow you to do this both on mobile and on desktop. So these are some other really great tools for you to be able to use to be able to teach, you know, your IT staff. Because really, they just need to be shown. You know, it's, it, it's, it's really that simple. 
Once the, once the light bulb goes on, they're like, oh. And you know, most of these problems are so simple to fix. You know, labeling an image, fixing a keyboard issue. Most of the time, they're very, very simple to fix. There are occasions where they're not, but for the most part, they're pretty simple to do. Thanks. Hi, um, Ray, isn't it? My name is Dana, and I'm hey, Dana. super excited to be here. This is my very first time at ACB. Welcome. Thank you. It's my first session, too. So, um, But I think, Ray, you said you worked for United. I sure do. Awesome, because I work for Delta, and I think we should be best friends. So, Well, my, I'm, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, I love you either way. I would like to talk to you, though. That, that. Well, I have a question, though. I think from a transportation perspective, a lot of airlines and, and large organizations, they think of their .com and what their website looks like. And obviously, I think as organizations, we have a long way to go when it comes to accessibility of our apps. So maybe this maybe is geared toward Ray, but also others in the room. I would be curious, what type of, when I think of apps that are truly accessible, which ones stand out as these are shining stars, these are the ones that we should, we should look to? And I know when I think of Lyft, it varies so differently from an airline app. But um, not to try to gear it toward transportation, but I know that's been such a, a huge focus, I know, for a lot of airlines and a lot of organizations. Um, thank you for that, Dana. And I definitely would like to uh, catch up with you. Um, and actually, it's interesting you're asking this because one of the things that we're doing at United is actually about we're undergoing a complete redesign of our app, which is going to include making it accessible. Um, I think what happened just if I might digress for a second, I think what happened with the airlines was that, you know, they, they, they got the mandate for dot-com and kiosk. And then there's like this whole world of apps out there. And I think for a while, a lot of them were saying, and maybe some still are, well, that's not mandated, so we don't have to do that. And uh, uh, I'm pleased that United seems to be taking a little different approach there. So I think what I would, I would say that, it, the it, it doesn't say an Uber or a Lyft app. Yeah, it's so different from the airlines. But I think what I would say to people is, what are the things that make it accessible? The things are that when I find an icon, I know what it what it means. Where what what it's you know it's it's labeled. You know, there's a the buttons are labeled. So when I touch a button, I know what that button is going to do. Um, when I come to a text box or a, 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 another control of some sort. Um, I know what the purpose of that control is because it's labeled. It tells me when I land on it. It tells me. I think if you can do that kind of thing, that's, that, that's information that can be related to whatever apps we're talking about, whether it's um, uh, an Uber or a Lyft or other, air, other types of apps, uh, airlines. I would say this. I think I would... If you if you can, I would talk about mainstream apps that are accessible because people know what those are. Um, not everybody, maybe for example, knows Money Reader, uh, but you know we all do, and many of us do because we use it. But um, you know, like like the Ubers and Lyfts, the um, DoorDashes of the world. Um, I won't say Grubhub. Um, they've got a long. They've got some work to do, um, but. Um, you know, anyway, just the basic things about that particular app, what makes it an accessible app, I think are good things to uh, to share. Yeah. 
Okay. Hey, it's uh, Josh. Just a quick comment um, for you, Dana. I, um, Dana, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I recently used the Alaska Airlines app and found it to be remarkably accessible. Um, it's not perfect. There are um, some graphics that get used as buttons, that, um, but you can figure out what they are by the name of the graphics. So um, Alaska Air, if you're looking for a... For an example, an exemplar, I would look to Alaska. It's not perfect, but it's a good one. Dana, I would, I would also add a, a little bit of guidance for your technical people. Um, there's, there's a lot of emphasis now in the tech space to make cross-platform apps, apps that run... You know, you write it once, you've got the JavaScript logic, it runs on Android, it runs on... Uh, those are commonly either um, embedded web apps or they're using React Native. Um, yep. Both of those have significant accessibility challenges. You save money on the one hand by you know, having something that you can update without having to go through the app store and get approval for, but you have those, those downsides. Um, Amazon uses React Native in some of our apps. We are in the process of working with Facebook to improve the React Native accessibility framework. Um, please push anyone using React Native in your company to move to React.6.0 or later because that's where the accessibility fixes are starting to land. Yeah, and a couple other things I would say too is uh, in the iOS space, there's a lot of a lot of the developments done in Swift, and in the Android, I'm hearing about Kotlin, C-O-T-L-I-N. And again, you don't need necessarily know what these things are, um, but that's the that you know those those are the kinds of uh, code platforms that that are being used. And um, there are organizations out there uh, like. Um, like level access, for example, that have, that perhaps would have materials that can be shared as to how to uh, make some of those kinds of things accessible. There's a whole other area that we could have gone into, which is uh, websites that are being built mobile responsive, where you know the desktop version of it might be accessible. When when it hits a mobile screen, the accessibility doesn't carry over, and so um, that that's a big that's another challenge because. You have to, again, hopefully some of the things like what Jeff was talking about with iOS 13 and that are going to help that because then you can re really record what your experience was on that website so that they say, well, you know, we designed it to be accessible. And you can say, but it didn't work on my mobile device. And so that's a case where some, they didn't test it fully or wasn't tested fully on mobile. So. Um, a, another note for uh, folks who aren't blind but need things like large print or mm -hmm. high contrast, again, um, web-based or particularly embedded web or React, they are not up for that challenge yet, right? If I choose a large font theme uh, in iOS, those reactive apps are not reacting to those settings yet. It makes you wonder why they chose that name. Um, but those are also on the, the roadmap to, to get Very fixed. Very delayed but, reaction. But lots of, lot, yes, well. 
Um, but those, those are all things to keep in mind. It, it really matters what user interface libraries yeah. you choose. If you can go native iOS, go native Android, that's always the best choice. Uh, but there are often business reasons that take you away from that. Yeah, and I think, un and unfortunately, sometimes a lot of times, you know, the average user maybe doesn't know uh, that kind of thing, which is why we're talking to all of you here, so that you can ask those kind of you can ask those kind of questions and get that out there. But anyway, anything else? Here's a mic. Peter's coming to you with the uh, hand Mike. mic there. Who's who's asking? Yeah. It's actually. Oh, sorry. 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 Speak into the mic. Okay. There you go. Um, I just wanted to mention two quick things. Um, one is so it's not really a question, but one is the that often when things are much more accessible to us, it makes it better for everyone else. Absolutely. And because years ago I had a huge meltdown when I was in graduate school because the course that I had just started taking, I was seriously ready to quit. And, but someone intervened and they fixed the website. And that night someone said to me, I don't know what happened on that website, but, and then she went on and on and on. And I said, well, you can thank my meltdown and JAWS for that one because somebody fixed it. <laughs> so it was better for everyone. And then one other comment about when people can see things that happen. Okay. Um, we have a new website um, that we're all supposed to be using at our church for scheduling. And it is horrible. It is horrible. I can do a lot of it, but then, so I went to my neighbor who is, um, that's his work. He does computer stuff. And, um, and he said, well, all you have to do is blah, 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 blah. And I said, I know. And so we started doing it together and he immediately saw, you know, what worked and what didn't. And so that your suggestion about using Zoom to me seems like such a good one because people would be able to see it. Anyway, that's it. Um, so thank I'm you. I'm going to bring the mic to Deborah and then uh, to the last And this will be the last one. Up. Brian says we're, we got, we can take two more. All right. Well, two hands are up, so I'll get to both of them. Deborah? Okay. Thanks, Peter. Just quickly, wanted to know uh, what the process is for CEUs or CECs. At the beginning of this presentation, back at uh, 115 slash 117, I gave the opening code. And at the end of this, I'm supposed to give the ending code, and you're supposed to put those down. If you arrived late, I'm supposed to be hard-nosed and say, that be your problem, not my problem. But life is what it is, so come talk to me after. And you can plead your case. Uh, hi, I'm just going to uh, put you on the spot here. Um, uh, Brian's mentioned a number of things that, you know, the committee have been working on. Um, I'm interested to know specifically in relation to airline with an S, um, touchscreen um, seat backs where everything Ooh, including the call button is a touchscreen. Yeah, and what exactly can we expect to happen in the near future with that? 
Well, Susan, my dear, I can only speak for United, um, although I think some other airlines are starting to move into this space. Um, just recently, uh, United deployed in the seatback entertainment space, uh, the seatback screens, um, and if you're in like the real high-priced cabins, you can get these handheld remote controls, which I enjoy playing with when I was testing them because guys like remote controls. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, anyways, this we have deployed an IFE system that is it's Android-based and it is the mo by far the most accessible in-flight entertainment system out there. Uh, what we have done and. I'm trying to remember how you, so if you're on United, I'm trying to remember how you bring this up, but there is a way that you can, the, 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 our flight crews are supposed to be trained, and again, I know how that goes, uh, to show you how to bring that up, but it is, it, I will tell you, it's completely accessible. You can, you, you, it's, it's Android based, you use your talk back gestures, you can swipe across and double tap on things and uh, menus, whether you want to watch TV shows, movies, um, uh, podcast, listen to podcasts, any of that stuff. Um, you can you can do it on our system now. I don't know what other airlines are for sure are doing. Maybe our friend Dana has some. What? Oh, the key. And, and Brian's asking about kiosks now. All of the airlines are required by I think it's 2022 to have 25 percent of their airport kiosks accessible, and um, I can tell you that many of the ones that United has deployed are have the accessibility built in. It's, it's kind of like the ATM, you know, where you plug in your headphone and the uh, voice comes on. And then there's a, there's a keyboard that's got, you know, up and down arrow keys and different things like that on it. Um, now, one of the issues there, and it always is, is training. And um, I, in fact, I was at a, in a, um, at a meeting at work um, and uh, last October, and some of our... Uh, uh, airport ops people said, "Oh, we have accessible kiosks. We didn't. We didn't know. We thought that one kiosk was broken." And it's, uh, yeah, it actually said that. So we that was a good education. So again, it's it's a lot of it's in the training and you know stuff like that. But I can tell you, United is doing some has done some great work. We won the Crystal Cabin Award for our entertainment uh, accessibility. Um, now. This is different than personal device entertainment, which we also offer. That has some room for improvement. Uh, that's where you can get it on your device, and that's got room for improvement. We know that, and um, um, I can't say a whole lot, but uh, there are some, stay tuned, there are some things coming. So there is work going on in that space. All right, uh, thank you, Ray, for that presentation. Appreciate it very much. So I've got a half a dozen questions for the audience that remains. One, what kind of thing would you like to have happen at next year's 411 from the IAC? I hear more website accessibility related content. Some of the updates like you did this year. Continued up. Ah, I can't bring the mic around. Well, we're saying the same thing. We continued <laughs> updates like this year. So. Okay. Uh, one of the things I thought might be interesting, I was talking about how everything kind of intersects these days. That maybe what we need to do is to perhaps 
have uh, an IAC member and a transportation committee member talk about the crossover between that and how we're working together and how it makes a difference to do that. Yeah. Do a similar kind of thing with employment. It's very hard to apply for a job these days with inaccessible application sites. You with me? So there's a lot of that crossover. I thought that might be kind of an interesting format, if you will. But you know, technology changes rapidly. We may all be here next year, and the issue is going to be um, that accessible robot that can now pick up after your guide dog so you don't have to go out. Hey. <laughs> you just you just don't know what people are going to come up with, you know? Uh, this whole idea of artificial intelligence and what it can do for us um, and how we can harness that in an accessible way. This Christmas, I'm hoping to have implemented a camera slash screen combination that will allow me to share Christmas with my family back in Oregon and Washington. Wouldn't it be nice to have a camera in your living room so that your relatives don't have to come and bother you? you can <laughs> I didn't say that, did I? It's on the recording. Yeah, it's on the recording. Yeah, well, well but nonetheless, you know, I... I do this, I, know, I suppose a lot of people do on Christmas, I call all these relatives who I couldn't be with. But wouldn't it be better if we could kind of conference call ourselves together and see everybody uh, together and share the opening of a present or something along those lines so that family was really uh, together on a special day. Go ahead. Uh, that's a drop in on Echo Show. Uh-huh. Drop in so, so. on Echo Show. Kim, did you hear that? Yeah. What so, do I need, Kim? Uh-huh, I hear that. Uh -huh. so, so, Brian, I've, I've got a suggestion for you guys. Um, and that is, we're hearing a lot more about these security camera systems that you can put at your home, like the Ring and some of these things. What, how, how accessible are those things? And... Um, what is being done to uh, make some of those? Because we, we care about our security as much as anybody else. I'll, 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 come, to you. I'll come to you in a second, Kim. Um, so Amazon acquired Ring a little while ago. Uh, so we are working with them to work through the issues that we have found with the Ring app. There are quite a few blind people who are using Ring and are enjoying Ring. But there are a number of, of pretty graphical features with Ring where you can sort of draw a picture on the screen to say where movement should be reacted to and where movement shouldn't be reacted to when the camera sees movement uh, out on the street. You don't want it, you know, every time somebody walks by out on the sidewalk, but you do when they come up to your door. Uh, so those are some of the, the access challenges with the Ring app. Um, but since we've acquired them, we have been working uh, with them to, to do that. There's also the Amazon Cloud Cam camera for indoors. Um, we also bought another company called Blink. And Blink makes cameras, both indoor and outdoor. Um, and again, those are, those are all things we're working on since the acquisition. Peter. Uh, to, to work through all that. Yeah, Jeff. Peter. Well, no, uh, Kim is next. 
first camp venue. Uh, and I put the mic in front of you. There you go, camera. Okay. I, I would like to learn more about smart home and how, how extensive and accessible things we can do besides the, the plug in the wall that turns on and off my lights. Um, I'd like to learn more about more of that, those kind of things too. There's actually a session that Amazon is joining on smart home accessibility, I think on Monday at ACB. Uh, you, you, you do it with the React Native based app on your iPhone that we're working on fixing the React Native issues in so that you can do it completely from your app when you're away at the conference. Peter? Yeah. We have the Ring video doorbell. Uh huh. And it would be wonderful if you could answer the door with your Alexa device and talk with the person over your Alexa device. So, so, you, would, so you would not have to grab your phone and f try to figure out through the app how to get that before the person leaves. So, so Jeff, uh, you can do that today on the show. On the Echo Show. Only so on the show. Yes. On the show and the show five, the, yeah. the smaller one, the new one that just came out for $119. Right. Uh, so, so basically, um, we got that working first on the devices that stream video. Right. Um, and yes, we understand that you know plenty of people don't have one of those or can't see one if they had it, and so they'd like this to work just with an Echo. But, but actually, you can have that today with an Echo Show. Yeah, I knew that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right, any other questions or comments? I've got one in the back of the room. Hello. I have a problem with, with some of the people that are designing these websites, including uh, they go for beauty instead of accessibility, and they just love right now baby blue on white or and or or blue on a gray background and I wish some of these programmers would call on somebody who's uh, severely visually impaired to see if it's readable there absolutely are standards on contrast yes, there are. Uh, and uh, AFB did a pretty good article uh, and did some serious research on displays and contrast and those kinds of things. So when you have that problem, one, complain about it to the company that you bought the product from or you would have had not had this problem, and refer them to afb.org uh, access world and there they'll find the, I think, some of the best descriptions of that contrast. Uh, Brian, I think oh. there's also a feature mm -hmm. on uh, the Safari browser on iOS where you can have the page re-rendered in higher contrast. I saw that 
recently on my iPhone. And that might also be an immediate source of improvement for you. I saw it looked like you had an iPhone there next to you. That, that might be something to, to try as well. Okay, last question. So, those who are going for the credits, uh, one of the <coughs> suggestions that I was given was not to give out that number until exactly four o'clock. Now, it ain't exactly four o'clock. You're waving? I'm waving, not at you. Oh. I'm waving at Peter. Yes, dear. <laughs> before, before, I'm going to be nice, Brian, so don't, don't fall over, okay? <laughs> I'm going to say something nice, okay? So, Brian, um, I just want to acknowledge to all the people in the room, and including your colleagues on the Information Access Committee, that you have been the chair of Information Access for many moons, and you've done a stellar job. And as president of ACB, not your wife, that was in parentheses, um, you have done a great job, and I'm just acknowledging, and I'd like the whole room here to acknowledge that you've done a great job. So, even Ida Bell stood up, because she thinks she did a great job, too. That's my dog. <laughs> so, you know, Brian's going to stay on the committee, and he's going to work with the new chair, who is Tony Stevens. And, uh, and we're all looking forward to Tony joining the team. And uh, thank you, Brian, for all your hard work. Thank you very much, Madam President. I appreciate that. So now, the closing number. And it's not a musical number. It's the closing number number, right? So let me make sure I've got it right now, because I'll just get in all kinds of trouble. Hold on a second. Sing it, right? Yeah, you, I could probably play it on the ukulele, though. One moment here, I've got a. I don't want to balance rewards. Stop that. <laughs> I got a new email and it suddenly gave me one moment. What is your email? Hold on. I don't need Wayfair, Wayfair Baker racks. Hold on. Yes, I know. He's going to make us wait till four o'clock. A man is attempting to find a code. It's, it's the Charleston code. It's kind of similar to the Da Vinci code, but a little different. <laughs> oh, all those lovely... All my receipts for rides. I got it. Okay. You found it. Yeah, it's on 
It's on page 14 of 14 pages in this email. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Getting close. Nope. Here it comes. You won't believe it. Thanks, See you later. She needs some help. Hold on. Come on. Oh. Here it is. End code. Two five zero four seven. Bingo. Yeah. Two five. Zero four seven. For those who were not here on time, because I'm not much of a rule keeper, 4F930. Start code 4F930. And you didn't hear that? <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank one and all.